Amen. You guys can have a seat. Yeah, you can clap for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, really are uh, pumped to welcome you guys into membership here at the church. It's a great joy to have you. Uh, if you have a, a copy of God's Word, if you'll open it to the uh, book of Nahum in the Old Testament. Yes, I said that correctly. Uh, we have uh, humorously labeled this the uh, Sticky Pages series because we're uh, not because it's sticky in our minds, but because we're pulling apart the pages uh, that you perhaps have not traveled before. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Nahum in these chapters, uh, these three chapters together this morning. Before we, uh, before we dive into this, uh, this text, I uh, want to remind you or, or perhaps even point your attention for the first time to uh, something we have coming up in a few weeks. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that twice a year uh, we collect an offering specifically for uh, mission sending. Uh, try to do that once in the winter and once at some point in the spring. Our spring offering we've historically called the First Fruits Offering. If you remember two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago on Easter Sunday? However long Easter was, a couple of weeks back, um, we looked at the image of Christ as the first fruits, this uh, offering that was prescribed in the Old Testament law that you would bring the first of your harvest to the Lord and trusting, thanking him for his kindness to you and saying, God, I trust that you're going to give me more of this. So our spring offering has been a first fruits offering that we've said, God, you've been gracious to us. You've given us more than we deserve. And we want to, with open hands, trust you that you'll continue to do so. We use this offering, the spring offering, uh, to fund strategic missions uh, projects uh, literally around the world. This year, uh, the pastors have targeted five uh, specific locations or five big, big ideas, big projects that the pie piece of our First Fruits offering will be divided to. Uh, five pie pieces, 20% each. Three will go to Turkey to uh, Chuck and Andy and Jill and the team there. Uh, 20% will go to Czech Republic, to David Naperl McWhite and their work there. Another 20% will go to India, AJ and his mission to develop pastors. A fourth of this pie piece, or a fourth area of this pie piece, is labeled uh, TCC Mission Sending. This will use to help get the church at Blue Ridge off the ground, as well as some other strategic projects that we have here locally involved with our church planting. And then the last one you see labeled North American Mission Board. For those of you that don't have a Southern Baptist background, this may be a bit foreign concept to you, but basically the 50,000-some-odd Southern Baptist churches in the U.S., have a pooling mechanism that we collect money and use it to fund various projects uh, around the world. You can imagine 50,000 Southern Baptist churches, what the collective impact of that money could be. So the winter offering is called the Lottie Moon uh, offering. Spring offering is Annie Armstrong. This Annie Armstrong, Annie Armstrong, Southern Baptist missionary, this money is used to fund church planting across the U.S., Okay, so we will use a fifth of this money that's given to the First Fruits Offering to send on to the North American Mission Board to fund U.S. church planting of which we, we partner with. Now let me say as a caveat, if you're here and you are specifically passionate about one of these areas, we are totally open to you designating your giving to go to one of those. We know that some of you historically give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, and that is a passion for you. Just want to encourage you to write that on the envelope or on the check. We would say it would be a great benefit to us, the majority, if we can just pool all of this and divide it evenly. 
So what we don't want is a bunch of people dividing the money for us in different ways, but we do know that some of you are particularly passionate about that money getting to the Annie Armstrong offering. If you want to designate that on the check, we'll make sure that happens. Our goal is to be able to give $5,000, $6,000 to each of these projects to see about $30,000 come in from our church uh, combined that we can use to fund these various missional endeavors. That would be a massive win for us. So we just want to invite you. This will be May the 1st. We're going to collect the offering on May the 1st. You can give online. There'll be a drop-down designated for First Fruits, or you can bring your gift that morning, and uh, we'll take up a special offering then. Okay? So may the first be thinking, praying about how God would lead you to give uh, to our First Fruits offering. Let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll jump into the teaching God's Word. Father, we do uh, thank you that our little church can be a part of something so much bigger than us. Thank you that you are a God whose, whose arm is not too short. Uh, you, you have uh, great power, great scope. You're sovereign over all things. This morning, you're at work in uh, ways we can't even imagine around the world. And uh, we are thankful that in some way we, we tap into that. We're a part of what you are doing. We ask that you would multiply the significance of our time together as we uh, learn to love one another well, share prayer requests and needs, uh, give handshakes and hugs, that you would form community in here that's profitable to spurring us on to Christ-likeness. And we also ask that you would use your word by your spirit this morning to shape and refine our minds. Pray that you protect us from apathy, from kind of going on autopilot as we sit under the teaching of your word. I pray that you would protect me from any foolish thing that might come in my mind uh, as I communicate your scriptures. Would you uh, speak through me to your people this morning? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, let's, um, let's jump into the book of Nahum this morning, a three-chapter book. Uh, as we turn to the second of our, our banners in the back, um, let's begin actually uh, looking at the, the way this book ends. If you'll turn to Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. Nahum 3, uh, verse 19. <clears throat> the ending of a book can tell you much about what precedes it, and that is certainly the case with uh, Nahum's prophecy. We see the end of the book really being a summary or a thesis of, of all that's going to come before as God, through the prophet, concludes his words to the people saying this, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has come your I'm sorry, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Okay, if you were just reading that verse in isolation, what you know at the outset is this prophecy is not good news for somebody. Okay, if the prophecy ends with these words, you're going to be destroyed completely, and they're going to be people that once you're destroyed are going to stand over you and clap. They're going to find joy in your destruction, this is not good news. There, the, the audience to whom this book is, is written, unceasing evil has come upon everyone, and so now unceasing evil will come back upon them. 
Now, if you look back in Nahum chapter 1, we get a picture for who, this, who the audience is of Nahum's writing. And this is really, really critical. Because to whom the book is written really shapes uh, the news that we just received. Begins, Nahum begins his writing in chapter 1, verse 1. This is an oracle concerning Nineveh. So we know right at the top, right at the outside of the book, book is not good news, and the book is not good news, is not not good news uh, for God's people, but is really bad news for the other nations. Okay, this is one of three minor prophets that's not written to the people of God. And this frames how we understand the entire book. It's written to be read by the people of God, to be understood by the people of God, but the audience in question is not God's people. Um, We've seen this uh, once already in the book of Obadiah. If you remember, Obadiah was written to Edom, this uh, surrounding nation. Uh, We'll see it again in Habakkuk, uh, coming soon, that this book is written primarily to Babylon, Babylon the Great. This book being written to uh, one of the surrounding nations, and Israel, the the people of God, are kind of eavesdropping in, as it were, on what God is going to do or what God is saying to Nineveh. Uh, In verse 1, we continue with these words. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Then ahead in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now, upon first glance at these verses, this opening chapter, and really the entire book, these sound like overwhelmingly negative descriptions of God. If you're new to the church or new to the people of God, new to the scriptures, you think, aha, I knew it. I knew God was like that. But with a moment's consideration, we we see that this is actually really, really good news about God. Uh, Imagine uh, if we're talking about the criminal justice system. Let's consider the uh, Charleston church shooter here recently. Someone who clears, someone who is clearly guilty, is not someone for whom you have any respect, right? If we bring the shooter who's confessed to this, it's very clear that he did it before the judge, and the judge says to one who is clearly guilty, you're not guilty, go free. You say, that's a bad judge. So the fact that we see here the consistency of God's character, that he says, I'm going to judge those who are guilty and I'm going to do it rightly, this is really good news about the nature and character of God. It's another aspect of his holiness. We see that he is who he says he is. God will judge those who commit heinous sins in this life. And this is what makes Jesus' work all the more astounding as we fast forward to the New Testament. God in Jesus, did clear the guilty, but he did it not by turning his back on sin or winking at sin, but rather by judging Christ. This is the fascinating nature of the gospel, the way none of us would write it if we were to come up with a story on our own. 
That in Jesus' death, as Paul says in Romans 5, God becomes just and the justifier at the same time. He judges sin, but he does it such that he doesn't kill those of us who are sinners who are guilty of our sin, but rather he pours out that wrath on Christ that we by faith might receive a gift, be imputed righteousness that we do not deserve. Here we see the outset pre-Christ God says, I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge the guilty. What is in view here particularly is uh, the nations, particularly Assyria, of whom Nineveh is, is the capital. They are filled at this point in the writing uh, with, with godlessness. If, you're, if you've uh, read the scriptures or been around for our, our preaching series, you know, hey, I've heard Nineveh before. Where have, where have I heard that? Where have I heard that? You've heard it in the book of Jonah. This is the people that God instructed Jonah to go and uh, share the message. And if you remember, Jonah said, those people are so wicked, I don't want God to save them. And he runs the opposite direction. Well, the book of Jonah ends with a great revival. God turns the people's heart back. They love God. Fast forward, and this is where when you look at your Bibles, it gets a bit confusing because Jonah's only a couple of books before this. But in the span of time, we have about 150 years between Jonah and the writing of Nahum's prophecy. So that generation has now died, and in their wake has come a godless pagan generation that's doing whatever they want to. Incidentally, this is the same nation, Assyria, that had been used by God to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel about 100 years before. And now he says to this people, you're about to be destroyed. In uh, chapter 1, verse 9, let's read. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. For you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Fast forward to chapter one or chapter two, verse one. The scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. Then in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. This is significant words from God. He says, you're many, you're seemingly great, which the nation of Assyria was in this day. And just as an aside, why don't you, you guys go and dress for battle? Get all your chariots together, all your people together, and let's come to the fields, and, and let's see who wins. And what I'm going to do is, is not merely inflict a wound, but I'm going to destroy you completely. And this isn't the kind of destruction from which you're, you're going to recover. You're going to be like stubble fully dried. It's going to be total. I'm going to blow you away. 
in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, as if we have any lingering questions about how God feels about the nation of Assyria and Nineveh particularly. He, uh, Nahum says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Now this is one of these teaching series that sounds really good conceptually about six months ago. When I say, that's awesome, let's teach on the minor prophets. And then you get this verse, right? What do you do with God saying that to a people? I'm going to throw filth at you and treat you with contempt. I'm going to make you a spectacle before the nations. God says to this people, I'm going to judge you completely. And this is exactly what happens. Within 40 years of the writing of Nahum's prophecy, what has been looming in the horizon, Babylon, rises up and crushes Assyria. Interestingly, God does to the nation, God does to Assyria and Nineveh particularly, what Jonah wanted him to do in the first place. He wipes them out. And he wipes them out completely. You're not going to read about Assyria on your Twitter feed today. They're done, they're destroyed. God does what he says in this passage to evil men and to pagan nations who rise up against God's people. But I want you to notice that, that this book, Nahum's Prophecy, though it is a word to these pagan nations, to uh, Assyria and Nineveh particularly, is also a word to the nation of Israel. Nahum's name actually means comfort or uh, uh, counselor. This book, though it is uh, one of destruction and despair for the people out there, is one of comfort uh, to God's people. How can that be? Well, two, there are two temptations that we face when we see evil men out there prosper. This is exactly what was happening in Nahum's day to the people of God. They were watching Assyria during the writing of Nahum's prophecy and then Babylon, Babylon shortly thereafter doing the very things that they thought they should be doing. They were prospering. They were militarily significant. They were destroying people and capturing land. And you can imagine to God's people who were at this point, the northern and southern kingdoms have been divided, uh, Assyria has already come in and crushed the northern kingdom. They're kicked off the land. You can imagine at this point the fledgling minority of the people of God are beginning to question what in the world is God doing? Why is it that Assyria is ruling and significant and we're getting destroyed? Well, there are two temptations that they face that we too face in an age when evil men and women, those outside of the people of God, seem to prosper. First, the first temptation is the temptation to, to be like the nations. This is the temptation that has confronted the people of God throughout their history. It's the temptation that confronts your middle schooler for the first time on their history test. 
They know they go into the class, and no one has studied for this history exam. It is quite clear. But they also know that they have an incredibly naive teacher who doesn't have a clue what her class is doing. And as the test goes on, this good student who's really done some work but doesn't understand the material looks around and watches as friend after friend after friend slides out the little cheat sheet from under the test page and writes down the answers. Week later, fast forward, and the teacher passes back out the exams, and this student, who hasn't cheated on the test, looks and watches student after student after student with a hundred circled with a little star in the corner. And she gets a 75. Well, what happens the next time test rolls around? And this studious little girl, she says, they got away with it last time. What's stopping me from being like them again? from being like them this time. The next time the test rolls around, what do you do? You believe that nobody else is looking, so why does it matter anyway? Well, this is the the verdict to God's people. He says, I know it seems like everybody else is prospering. You're getting destroyed, but you need to know that God is not an absentee landlord. He's engaged in this process. He's watching, and he's watching in such a way, notice these uh, kind of parenthetical asides, like uh, chapter 1, verse 7, where Nahum says to, to God's people here particularly that the Lord is good. This is sandwiched within a book that doesn't seem to portray that at all. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, He knows those who take refuge in him. So the verdict to the people of God is, though it may seem that things out there, that the grass is greener out there, know that God is a stronghold. He is protecting, he is caring for those that take refuge in him. This is good news for God's covenant people who have been destroyed by Assyria. He says, I'm going to protect my people. I'm going to protect my people, and the worst thing you, should do, you can do is go and try to be like them. I mean, this the scene if you're Belgium during the rise of Germany in World War II. Like, do we just give in and capitulate to what we see happening around us, or do we stay firm, stay separate, and trust that though it seems like we're going to get destroyed, God's doing something? This should have been the message for God's people, However, the nation of Babylon, who will soon crush the Assyrians, about 50 years later, is going to destroy the southern kingdom of Israel and deport the last vestige of the people of God prior to 400 years of silence before our New Testament. They don't learn to take refuge in God, though they are given this stern warning of what will happen to those that live apart from him. So the first way we respond when evil men prosper, people get ahead out there, is to just run after being like them. This is the message if you're in this room and you're a parent, you're consistently giving to your teenager. I know it seems like wickedness wins, but know that God is at work doing something that you can't see. And you get frustrated as a parent. 
Why don't my kids get this? Why why don't we get it as well? That when we see evil at work, there is an invisible hand operating the puppet of this universe that we can't see, but that is at work. And we must trust that though we can't see his hand, God is still at work. So we don't run to being like them. And then secondly, let's turn up the temperature. When evil men prosper, when the nations get ahead, when we're a fledgling minority, we also don't get even. I want you to um, flip over to Matthew 5. Uh, Matthew 5. So the first, the first temptation is the, the middle school temptation of just being like them. They're, they're getting ahead. Wickedness is winning. And I'm just going to give in and be like them. Perhaps the second one is the temptation that more of us face in this room. The perspective on evil men prospering is amplified by Jesus in the New Testament. How do do we respond to them? Jesus fulfills the law in such a way that, that he turns up the temperature on these Old Testament commands, notice in uh, Matthew 5, uh, if you're in your Bibles and you have a red-letter version, you notice that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is, is all red letters primarily. This is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, the most extended sermon treatment we have from Christ. And here we have in chapter 5, right after the Beatitudes, this statement uh, in verse 17 that Christ came to fulfill the law. Don't think I came to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it. And then he takes, in verse 21, 27, 31, 33, and 38, he takes these uh, standard laws, these big-ticket laws, and he says, I'm going to amp them up a little bit. Rather than destroying them, I'm going to dial them in from external behavior to heart. So he, he takes the murder. He says, not murder that's the issue, it's, it's anger in your heart. Adultery, it's not adultery that's the issue. It's lust in your heart. But then he does the same thing as this text progresses. Like, we're, we're good with anger. Um, lust is painful, but we understand it conceptually. Divorce, oaths, keep your word. And then verse 38 gets really painful. Um, let's read 38 and follow. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For you love those who love you. What reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, clearly, this command at the back end of chapter 5, this summary statement quote of Leviticus 11:44, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is something that none of us in our sinful condition apart from Christ can do. We need the imputed righteousness that Jesus gives us through Christ. He's the only one that can perfectly keep this. But that does not then obliterate the law. As a result of God's redemptive work in our heart, the indwelling of God's Spirit, we're then instructed to, follow, to be like our Father, to be like the one who regenerated our hearts, who saved us. And that means that we have a drastically different response or an amplified response to evil men who prosper even than we see in the book of Nahum. Really, the message of Nahum is evil men are prospering. Don't be like them because I'm going to destroy them. The second step in this process is what we see Jesus say here in Matthew. It's not just don't be like them, but, but love them. And this principle of evil men who prosper uh, certainly applies to non-Christians who prosper, people who get ahead at your expense, people who wound you in all sorts of ways. But the principles also extend to the very people in this room. Um, Sadly, you put enough people, sinful, fledgling people in the same space, and you're going to have all kinds of relational shrapnel that's going to fly. We're all going to be evil men to one another in insignificant ways. So what do we do, how do we respond to these evil men? Let me give you, give you five takeaways this morning from Matthew 5. We don't want to do what Nahum said. We don't want to just be like them. But we also don't want to get even with them. So how do we not respond by getting even when evil men prosper? The first thing that Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 38 through 48 is that we should expect evil men to prosper. We should expect evil men to prosper. So so here's the principle. God makes the sun rise on the good and on the evil. This is an interesting principle. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So, evil men will prosper and evil men will hurt you as they prosper. And you cannot, as a frail human, draw a one-to-one correspondence between physical blessing on this earth and God's work in this, God's blessing of this situation. So we can't say, they're getting ahead, things are going well for them, therefore God's blessing them. Well, it seemed like that was the case with Assyria, and yet God was setting them up to destroy them. This expectation protects you from being shattered when you have an enemy. Uh, I'm often stunned by how um, frail I am, and many of you are, when people don't like us. When there are relational conflict and enemies and evil men prosper and things go haywire, the reality is that is life under the sun. That is the world that we live in, and we can expect God to send rain on the just and the unjust. And so if that's going to be the case, then what do we do in these situations? Idea number two is we pray. Notice Jesus is really clear and specific. 
Uh, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This principle demonstrates that true love for our enemy, enemies is something that begins in, in our hearts. Um, I hate the way God always exposes this in my own life in weeks that I'm teaching. Uh, writing about this text this week and uh, got word um, of uh, an acquaintance who was snarly to me. I know it's hard for you to believe that someone would be snarly to me because I'm such a friendly, polite young man, and uh, you would think that everyone would be nice to me, but this dude was snarly. He was one of like three people that's been that way uh, in my life. And uh, we, had a, we had an exchange that was not all that pleasant. Um, that exchange did not end with unity and man hugs. Um, it ended with frustration and no conversation for about a year and a half. Well, this week, um, I got word through another friend um, that this individual that had been snarly to me and we had butted heads um, got busted doing something stupid. Um, he sinned, and his sin was exposed, and it was really painful for him. And the first reaction in my heart was, I am so glad he got his. Been there? I am so glad he got his. And that reveals something really broken and busted and messed up in my heart. It reveals that my love is, is neighbor love. It's not enemy love. It's not the kind of love that prays for those who persecute me. It's not the love that can write these words on the walls of a concentration camp. Oh, Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. Do not only remember the suffering they have inflicted on us, Remember the fruits we brought thanks to this suffering. Our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, our courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart, which has grown out of all of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. This is a posture of a heart that understands that it is uh, more important, not just that we're not like them, but also that we don't seek to get even when evil men prosper, but we go to the next step. We, we love. Um, it is far easier for me to write people off when they hurt me than to do the hard work of extending forgiveness and actually loving them well. Our hearts are drawn, I would assume your hearts are drawn, to stories of forgiveness. The drunk driver who killed the teenager and the dad who reads at the funeral a letter of forgiveness to this, something about us wells up like, that is great. Consider the daily opportunities that you and I have to do the very same thing. To extend forgiveness when someone says something that kind of rubs us the wrong way. When evil men prosper, when things go well for others and it feels like our world is falling apart, we're instructed as a result of the empowering of God's Spirit to, to love those who act in that manner against us. C.S. Lewis, in his masterful book, The Weight of Glory, writes this. I want to read this extended quote because I think it's so helpful. You must make every effort to kill 
every taste of resentment in your own heart. Every wish to humiliate or hurt him or to pay him out. Get the, I love the, in our own case, we accept excuses too easily and in other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. You guys get what Lewis is running after? In our own case, when we mess up and we blow it, we're really quick to say, well, this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. But when someone sins against us, we're not anywhere quick to say there may have been things at play here that shaped this interaction. As regards to my own sin, it's a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are not as really as good as I think. As regards to other men's sins against me, it is a safe bet that those excuses are better than I think. But even, even if he's absolutely fully to blame, we still have to forgive him. And even if 99% of his apparent guilt can be explained away by really good excuses, the problem of forgiveness begins with the 1% of guilt that's left over. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. By meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness in no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves, and there is no hint of expectations. And God means what he says. So how is this type of forgiveness demonstrated? It's demonstrated in what Jesus says here is the next. So it's not just an internal pray. It's not just an emotive love. But fourthly, it's to serve. It's to serve. This is where Jesus gets really offensive in Matthew 5. It's to go the extra mile. It's to turn the other cheek. It's to not just give the thing that's asked of you, but to give more. So we are called with our enemies, with loving those who hurt us, not just to avoid the negative action, but we're told to replace it with godly, mature, gracious responses. And thankfully, time after time, life is going to prove that the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth strategy does not work. Try it in your home and see how it goes. Husband does not do the dishes for like the 89th night straight. And you decide to show him, right? You're going to get even by doing whatever it is that you get even with, right? That strategy, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, devolves very quickly, doesn't it? It's not very good at producing lasting change. The method to producing lasting change is to return good for evil. But such a process is going to come with great cost. To return good for evil requires the process of self-denial that's only possible by virtue of God's gracious intervention in our lives. It's only possible with a high understanding of the gospel of Jesus 
who to a bunch of evil, dead sinners extended great grace and love to them. What if God responded to you as you do to those who hurt you? What if God responded to you as you do to those who hurt you? In this same passage, Lewis writes, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This demonstrates a right understanding of the gospel that we can give forgiveness because we've been the recipient of forgiveness that we did not deserve. Therefore, Paul can end his letter to the church in Rome by saying this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do this? We do this by spinning back around to where we started. We trust, fifth idea, we trust that God is a far better judge than we are. He is going to perfectly and finally make things right. Remember, he will by no means clear the guilty. So, you don't have to get even. You don't have to get even. You can go to your grave knowing that as far as it depends on you, you've lived peaceably with all people and trust that God ultimately is going to have his way. He'll judge. So I don't have to concern myself with how do I get even with the person that's wronged me. How do I make things square in this financial deal that went sour? We can trust that God is orchestrating all things together for his good, and we can love and give in self-denial even when evil men prosper. Now, as we reflect on the application of this sermon, I want to invite you to just a time of silence. The band's going to come uh, to lead us in song as we're dismissed. And during our time of reflection before we stand and sing, I want you to, to consider this morning who is the enemy that you are called to love? Who is the enemy that you are called to love this morning? For some, that can be um, really, really painful, tragic situations and circumstances. The father that abandoned you as a child, the one who committed uh, heinous sins against you, the child that consistently comes out from under your discipline and does his own thing, and seems to not care. Maybe the spouse that you came here with this morning 
that you're on the outs with, though you're sitting side by side. It could be the person in the congregation that said a little off-handed remark last week and it wounded you. These are the opportunities we have each week to model our understanding of the gospel by forgiving the inexcusable in others because God through Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Would you prayerfully consider how you might respond to love your enemy this day? Would you use this time to pray for them by name and trust that God is at work prompting you to do what you can, and then ultimately leaving the rest to him. After a time of reflection, we'll stand and sing to the God who loves us through Christ.